I was thinking of a verse as we were singing, but it, uh, yeah, I can't find it. We'll just go with Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Um, it, was, uh, it was an ad lib anyways. As uh, we head into uh, our, our message now, I just wanted to make a quick announcement, and that is that in two weeks on Sunday, I believe that would be the 13th, Immediately following second service, right over here in, uh, in, in the adult Bible classroom closest to the kitchen, I can't keep track of all the numbers of which rooms, so you know which one I'm talking about, I'm sure. We're going to have an informational meeting uh, and just talk about, excuse me for one second, uh, talk about some details uh, and, and some possible dates for a trip to Israel. So, if you are interested in potentially going on a 10-day trip to Israel and seeing uh, the Holy Land, as it is so-called, come to that meeting and we'll talk details, costs, dates, all those kinds of things, locations. It'll be a great time. I'm looking forward to, uh, to having that discussion. I'm going to read to you this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and then we'll pray. Do not think... That I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that because of your word, we can no longer be afraid, we can no longer be dictated and have our lives and our, our fears informed by our circumstances. But Father, we can, uh, we can rest and trust in your word, in its truthfulness, in its authority, in its goodness. And so Father, as we uh, come today to this small text with massive implications for our lives and, and massive theological implications. Would you give us understanding and clarity and would you give me wisdom in, in, uh, as I speak in, uh, in, in just uh, being clear about how you have called your people in the church to relate to, to your word and particularly to the old covenant scriptures. Would you give us soft hearts to be willing to obey it? clear minds to be able to understand what you are teaching us here. Father, we want to continue to pray this month for the Mayhews. We thank you for their presence with us and even among us last week. We continue 
to pray that, that even though they are retiring, as ministry will continue both locally and globally, uh, that you would continue to use them for the strengthening of your church. Lord, you have, um, you have clearly presented to us that Jesus is the hope of the world, but the church is your chosen means by which that message spreads. And so would you give them a, a great ability to, uh, to strengthen those churches there in China that are, that are uh, undergoing persecution in ways that we just can't understand? Would you give, their, uh, the, would you give even maybe the persecution um, a, a witness to, uh, to their testimony, to the truthfulness of who you are and what you can do in our lives and the way that, ways that you can change people? Would you not just there, and, and would you keep us from the sin of just praying for the spread of the gospel abroad without being concerned for the spread of the gospel here as well? Would you help us to, to fulfill, and them, uh, them being the churches in China, the Great Commission of, of evangelizing the world and calling people to obey and to be baptized and to, uh, to, to proclaim again to another generation the gospel of Jesus Christ? Father, we pray for things going on in our own body. We uh, think of Athena's parents who are uh, just struggling with medical difficulties right now. Would you uh, give not only peace but health and uh, and wellness in that that situation, Lord? And we think of uh, Marsha Dashovsky who is uh, continuing to experience a fair bit of pain from her hip replacement, Lord. We thank you for a successful surgery, but uh, would you give her comfort uh, even as um, she's anticipated to be in pain throughout this week, Lord? Would you uh, help that pain to subside quickly and for her to be um, well, we just think of her as she's uh, home today recovering. Lord, um, we thank you that you, for those who have trusted in Christ, who have been adopted into your family, who are children of you, Lord, your children, that we are always within an earshot. We can always call out. We can always speak to you at any time of day or night and know that you will hear us. We thank you for hearing us this morning. and We ask you to be at work among us in these ways for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me, I have a tickle in my throat. Um, as we come to this passage today, I feel a little bit overwhelmed by the task that is at hand. The, these three or four, actually, verses that we're looking at today are, uh, are seemingly small but what Jesus is telling us here has massive implications, and much of Scripture that comes along post this portion of the Sermon on the Mount teaches us what our relationship to, to the Scriptures, particularly the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Old Testament, is to look like. There is a book, and, uh, and, and I, you know, sometimes, sometimes people don't like it when we name names, but sometimes things are just dangerous enough to do so. There's a book that came out some years ago by Andy Stanley. Some of, who, uh, uh, some of his stuff is just fine, but this is a particularly dangerous book. It's called Irresistible. And in this book, uh, Stanley identifies a problem correctly. He identifies a problem being that the church today often does not know how to use the Old Covenant Scriptures and oftentimes will abuse the Old Covenant Scriptures because the church is not Israel and you just can't co-opt every promise made to Israel in the church. And some of the, the laws in the Old Testament 
are civil laws that relate to the nation of Israel and not necessarily to the nation that we as as the church live in today. And some of the laws are ceremonial, how to worship in the temple. And we know that we no longer worship in the temple, but that God is building us up as a temple, as a people who together make a temple in which God dwells. And so there are some changes, but oftentimes those get abused. And so I think Stanley correctly identifies a problem, and then he proposes a solution that I think is, one, not new, and two, Jesus specifically addresses here in this text. His proposed solution is to stop talking about, reading, using, uh, or even printing with the New Testament, the Old Testament. He criticizes publishers for publishing the Old Covenant Scriptures along with the New Covenant Scriptures and calls us to, in his own language, quote, unhitch ourselves from the Old Covenant. And not just from the Old Covenant, but from the Old Covenant Scriptures. And he says, if we will simply disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament and tell people about Jesus, he will be irresistible and everybody will want to believe. In other words, what Stanley is telling us is that the problem with the church today and with our evangelistic efforts is the Bible. And if we will simply unhitch from it, everybody will want to be a Christian. I say this is not new because, as we see here, Jesus is already addressing this accusation in his day 2,000 years ago. And he opens this text with the imperative command to not think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And in fact, Jesus gives us the expiration date of the law and prophets, and we'll look more at this later, but the two things he gives us is number one, until it's all accomplished. And while Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, all that is prophesied of in the Old Testament has not yet come to pass. And the second uh, the, the second. Uh, time he gives us for when these scriptures will be done away with is when heaven and earth pass away. Which means as long as this earth is here and as long as the church is on it and until God undoes it, as we see in the book of Revelation, God's word in both the Old and New Testaments stands. The expiration date of the law And the prophets has been given to us. And as long as we're here, we have not come to that day. There's an effort as well, not only inside the church, to disconnect ourselves from some of Scripture. There's an effort in the world we live in to disconnect the words of Jesus from the rest of Scripture. Let me give you a quote from Joe Scarborough. This is just within the past Weeks. This is not uh, an old quote. If you don't know who Joe Scarborough is, he's an MSNBC host. And speaking on the issue of abortion, he says this, Let me just say, as a Southern Baptist that grew up reading the Bible, 
Then he makes an interesting claim. Listen to this. Maybe a backslidden Baptist, but I still know the Bible. Jesus never once talked about abortion. Never once. And it was happening back in ancient times. It was happening back in his time. Never once mentioned it. And for people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, it's heresy. If you don't believe me, if that makes you angry, why don't you do something that you haven't done in a long time? Open the Bible. Open the New Testament. Read the red letters. You won't see it there. Now what Joe Scarborough is doing is he's presenting to us this idea that somehow the red letters in your Bible carry more weight. And if you're prone to believe that, let me just point you to our text today. Does Scripture speak to the issue of abortion? Well, number one, we could say that Scripture speaks to the issue as to when life begins, as David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that God knit him in his mother's womb. We have this argument today that says what we find in the womb is not life, but I would tell you that if we found on Mars what we find in the womb, every single newspaper tomorrow would read, life found on Mars. And not only that, but in the law, God gives specific instruction to the nation of Israel that if two men are fighting... And if one of them strikes the wife of the other and she gives birth to the child and the child dies, you are to put that man to death. And then the text says, life for life. Now, I am not advocating that we go around blowing up abortion clinics or putting to death abortion doctors. Because we don't necessarily relate to all the civil laws the same. But what I'm telling you is that whatever Scripture speaks to anywhere, Jesus speaks to because here he upholds every single word of the law and the prophets. So I'm sorry, Mr. Scarborough, Jesus did speak to the matter. When he told us, Not to think that he has come to abolish the law and the prophets. It just simply can't be done. The reality is that Jesus is pointing us to all of his word and telling us it all comes with the same weight. Red letters may be helpful in understanding what Jesus said, but they don't delineate what is true versus what is maybe less true. 2 Timothy 3.16, of course then, as Paul writes to Timothy, the scriptures to which he would have been referring to would have been the budding New Testament and the sum of the Old Testament. And if you want later for the sake of time, I can give you both passages on, the passage I'm referring to on abortion, as well as how we know that the New Testament authors were writing scripture. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all 
Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Unless we get tempted to think, well, Jesus is upholding the law and the prophets in his day, but in, as, soon as, uh, as soon as he dies, they expire, I would encourage you to look at Luke chapter 16. I think it's particularly verses 16 and 17, where Jesus says that the law and the prophets were until John, and now it's the gospel. What does he mean? He says it's not at his death that the law and prophets find their fulfillment and we switch to this new covenant kingdom. It's it's with John the Baptist who announces the kingdom and the kingdom begins there. And Jesus is preaching that kingdom, not one that will be yet to come, but one that he is here announcing as its king now. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets, as it were, had already, in terms of how one relates to God, been replaced, if you will. Now that might seem strange language, because I'm saying it's not been uh, replaced, but we'll get to that here in a moment. Jesus, even though this is before his death, we've already come to the point where John the Baptist has announced a new way to, to connect to God, to relate to God religiously. It had always been by faith. That does not change. But it's no longer through the temple and through the temple services and sacrifices. It is now, even at this time, through Jesus Christ. And even under the new way of relating to God through Christ, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Even though the new covenant is upon us, we we simply can't undo the value of the Scriptures both old and new. And so, let's take a look this morning at how Jesus relates to the law, then how we do, and then one gigantic problem that is before us. And I'm not, for the sake of time, going to be able to flesh out all there is here. So, forgive me for that already, but there is, we'd be here for hours if we tried. Number one, let's look first at Jesus' relationship to the law. Jesus first tells us how he relates to the law, and he kind of makes two points in doing so, and I've already mentioned the first, and that is that Jesus affirms and upholds the law, that it is not done away with, it is simply fulfilled. Jesus wants us to know both the validity of the law and the permanence of the law. He is not getting rid of it. And and it's not, as I've already mentioned, going to pass away until heaven and earth do. The expiration date is set, and we have not come to that place yet. But if we are to say that Jesus upholds the law and the prophets, we must understand what kind of teaching it contains. First, it contains doctrinal teaching. It contains doctrinal teaching. The reality of God's word is that it tells us how to think. Now, remember that sometimes, because the kingdom of God is so upside down, as this uh, series is called, from our normal human fallen thinking, sometimes what seems sensible to us, 
and what Scripture says are going to come into conflict. And when they do, we must never be guilty of the sin of expecting the Word of God to conform itself to our sensibilities rather than conforming our sensibilities to the Word of God. When what you think is good comes into conflict with what God says is good, you are to submit yourself to the goodness of God. Unless you think that's not dangerous, read Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve question the goodness of God and act upon what appears good to them and see if the result is good. It's never good. It's never good. God's, he's not only our author and creator, he's our designer. And he knows how we run optimally. And all of his law and all of his word is given to us, not so that we might be miserable, but so that we might be happy and healthy, which only comes by means of being holy. And so first, we find doctrinal teaching. And all of the doctrines of the New Testament are found in the Old Testament, all the major doctrines. There's only one that you cannot find in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, and that is the doctrine of the church. But J.C. Ryle said it this way. He said, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. First, the Old Testament and the New Testament contains doctrinal teaching that tells us how to think. Secondly, it contains predictive prophecy. That is, uh, the, the proclamation of future events and how, they will come, uh, how, how those events will, will come out in history. I think most of us understand that. And third is ethical teachings. What's right and wrong. And this is where I cannot flesh out everything for you today, but I wrote a series of blog posts a while back uh, on how the New Covenant believer relates to the law. And we're going to go back and and, uh, publish those throughout this week so that they'll be at the top of the blog list. But let me just suffice it to say, in in the fastest terms possible, there's really four, uh, well, I'll just give you two ways, two ways to understand the believer's relationship to the law. You ask the question first, number one, is this, law, uh, is this law repeated in the new covenant? So murder and adultery and divorce and stealing and all of these things, uh, coveting, all related, all, all repeated rather, in the New Testament scriptures. And therefore they uphold the old covenant commands. The second question before us is not just, is this law repeated? Which, by the way, requires a knowledge of both old and new covenant scriptures. But the second question is, what type of law is this? And sometimes it's hard to tell, but generally we can tell that there are three types of laws given in the Old Testament. The first is ceremonial. And that is, whether in the tabernacle or the temple, here's how you worship. The New Testament puts an end to those ceremonial uh, laws. We no longer have to bring animal sacrifices and 
uh, and travel to Jerusalem three times a year for certain festivals and feasts and, and various other things. And so, so uh, ceremonial law is no longer required of us. Then there is civil law because Israel was a theocracy. It was to be governed by its religion and by her God. And so there are laws relating to civil commands, how to uh, repay a man if you borrow and kill his ox. Those are not applicable to us either because we do not live nor are we required to be part of the nation of Israel. And then thirdly, there are moral commands. What, who God is and how we are to be like him and what's right and wrong. Now, all of those contain moral things, but there are some moral commands regarding uh, marriage and sexuality and uh, honesty and uh, uh, idolatry and all kinds of things that are still not only repeated in the New Testament, but are just moral commands that were taught in the Old Testament. And those still stand as well. So Jesus upholds the doctrinal teaching of the Old Testament, the predictive prophecy of the Old Testament, and the ethical teachings of the Old Testament. But what he's about to tell us is that he is the fulfillment of the law. Not the abolishment of the law, but the fulfillment of the law, which means that as he fulfills it, we are now required to obey it in the way that he has commanded and really what he's commanding is, is total obedience. And yet we know that that's impossible. He's emphatic, if you will, that not one iota, these are Greek terms, nor one dot, probably referring to a yod, which is the smallest Hebrew letter, and what might be called a horn on some Hebrew letters that distinguishes one letter from the other. These would be the smallest stroke of a pen in Hebrew, not the smallest stroke of the law will pass away until it's all been accomplished and until heaven and earth pass away. So first, Jesus affirms and upholds the law, and second, Jesus fulfills the law. Chrysostom, many, many, many centuries ago said, his sayings were no repeal of the former, but a drawing out and filling them up. Jesus doesn't repeal the law and the prophets. He doesn't do away with them. He doesn't undo them. He fulfills them. There's two ways that we could say he fulfills them. First, and this is to back to Stanley's point and why his conclusions about what to do with the Old Testament are so wrong. First, all of the law and the prophets point to Jesus. It doesn't take very long in Galatians 3 to see that there are two reasons why God gave us the law. First, so that we would become more sinful. That seems weird, right? God wants us to be more sinful? Well, yes and no. It's not that God wants us to be sinful. It's just that he knows we already are. And I've asked the question in this room before, and almost every hand went up, how many of you have obeyed a rule simply because it was given? Right? Sometimes when a law is given, we, we, we simply disobey for the sake of disobedience. And so God gives us a law 
so that we will be lawbreakers, but not just so that we will be lawbreakers. Secondarily, Galatians 3 tells us that he gave us the law so that we would see ourselves as lawbreakers and understand our need for Jesus. Do you see the breakdown in Stanley's argument here? God's argument in Galatians 3 is that all the law and the prophets lead us to Jesus. And Stanley is saying that because he wants to lead people to Jesus, he wants to do away with the law and the prophets. This does not make sense. The law and the prophets all point to Jesus. They show us who he is and who we are. They show us what he has done and what we have done. They show us his perfection and our depravity. Second, he is the only one to perfectly obey them. He fulfills them not only in that they all point to him, but that he is the only one who has successfully and perfectly obeyed the law. He does what no one else can do. And this is what allows him to be our substitute. He perfectly obeys the law. The consequence of disobedience is death. But he perfectly obeys the law. And then as our substitute, in our place... He goes to the cross and dies, not paying for his own sin because he had none but for ours. And he goes to the grave where we deserved to go and by the power of an indestructible life is resurrected again. So that by faith, his death becomes our death, his burial, our burial. This is the picture of baptism. His perfection, our perfection. His righteousness, our righteousness. Until such a time as we go to heaven and are perfected uh, completely and totally. But for now, we have to trust him. He is the one who perfectly obeys the law. And so he is the fulfillment of the law because it all points to him. And then he comes as, he is, uh, as we're told he would and because he perfectly obeyed it. Now, what is the believer's relationship to the law then? If he had come to abolish the law and the prophets, there would be no need for him to even mention what our relationship to the law is. But because it's not nullified, because it's not void, rather fulfilled, because it's not done away with, but rather accomplished, he now tells us how we are to relate to the law. And it is is as well in this text twofold. First, we see in verse 19 that we are to obey. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, I'm sorry, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom he's here announcing. Whoever relaxes one of the laws, though he may make it into the kingdom, this is not an absolute statement that he will not be a believer. It is simply to say, if you want to find yourself insignificant in the kingdom of God, find ways to relax the law so that you can uh, stroke your own consciousness with your goodness. Just lower the bar a little bit so that it becomes easy to obey and and teach others to do the same. You'll find yourself being insignificant in the kingdom. 
Because whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The first response is simply obedience. And I think in many ways, in many ways, in an effort to overcome legalism, which is not good, we can never of our own righteousness commend ourselves to God. That's what legalism is. It is asking God to look at my own goodness for my approval rather than Christ's. You want to know what legalism is? Just stand before God and say, Lord, look how good I am. Look how obedient I am. That's what legalism is. It is presenting our works to God as reason for his approval rather than resting in the goodness of Christ as the reason for God's approval. But we have, in an effort to fight legalism, swung the pendulum the other way and said, well, grace, it, 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 obedience isn't really that big of a deal because there's, there's grace. And, and, and really, we end up just doing the same thing. We, we trade one legalism for another. We trade one legalism that says, look at me and look how good I am for obeying all the rules for a legalism that says, look how good I am for not obeying all the rules. And somewhere in the middle is this rest and trust in the righteousness of Christ to be accepted by God and responding in obedience, in trust that the word of God and the command of God is good. And I think the church writ large today, at least in the circles that I've run in, has forgotten how important obedience is. But Jesus is clear in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we say we love God or we love Jesus, but obedience is not required, we're deceiving ourselves. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, or that by, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and... His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Obedience to God is the necessary and an absolute result of genuine saving faith. Those who love God, those who, as we're told in Jeremiah 31, 33, those who have been given hearts of flesh and had their hearts of stone removed are those who are not only able to obey, but delight in obeying, knowing that even when there's a conflict between my sensibilities and the word of God, God is good and I am not. 
And so I obey whether I understand what he is telling me or not. We often say in our house to our children that understanding is not a requisite for obedience. You don't have to understand what I'm telling you in order to obey what I'm telling you. And so it is with God. Sometimes my sensibilities are so fallen that I look at the word of God and I go, I don't understand that. And God whispers to me, understanding is not a requisite of obedience. And in those moments, we need to trust that he is good. And so first, believers are to obey. Secondly, believers are to teach others to obey. Notice it's not just a matter of not lowering the bar or raising the bar. And in fact, what Jesus is about to do, well, we'll get to that in a second. But, but believers are to teach others to obey the law as well. I've got to be really careful here because um, sometimes I'm not very clear. And I've had people ask me really good clarifying questions. Um, but, but the reality is uh, that while we should be good kingdom saints, while we should stand up for what is right, while we should try and seek justice in the world, Jesus has been clear already in the Beatitudes that those who are in his kingdom seek justice in the world. And while we should seek justice and be good uh, kingdom saints in whatever, uh, whatever country we live in on this earth, legislating morality isn't the aim. If, if we simply elect the right people and pass the right laws and, and make certain things in our country acceptable or unacceptable, those aren't kingdom victories. They, they might be victories in this life because the restraint of sin is always good for people. Always. Because sin is always destructive to people. Always. But kingdom victories come when we teach others who Christ is and how to obey him first by faith and then in obedience. We teach others to obey the law. We teach other believers to obey the law for their good and for God's glory. And we teach unbelievers so that they can know their need for Christ. But either way, we're called to teach others. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the Great Commission. Most of us know this. This is the mission of the church. This is the aim of your life. This is why you exist. This is why God saved you so that you will, and I will go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's obedience. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Your job is not merely to obey, but to teach others to obey. If you consider yourself part of the older generations, what are you doing with younger generations to teach them to obey? And if the thought that just went through your head is they don't want to spend time with me, you're wrong. And I'm not guessing. I've talked to them. You're wrong. They want you to invest in them. They want you to invite them to dinner or lunch. They want you to be hospitable. 
And if you are of the younger generations and you don't want that, I would encourage you to rethink that. I knew a guy um, in Pendleton, and uh, he asked me a question one time. His name was Frank. Frank said, you know what the difference between a smart person and a genius is? I said, Frank, I have no idea. He said, a smart person learns from their mistakes. A genius learns from others. If you are young, connect yourself to people who have lived life longer than you. They're not dumb or out of touch. They're wise. And you will make your own mistakes, but just don't be so foolish as to make theirs. Learn from them. And, and that, that, that's not a one-way road, by the way. I learn all the time from people older and younger than me. We all are learning something from somebody. Everybody has something to teach. But I would challenge you, teach others to obey. And, and, and that doesn't have to be a class. Just connect your lives close enough to other people who, who don't look like you, who, who might have a different hair color than you, or more or less hair than you. And learn from each other. Teach each other to obey. Because obedience is good. This is the commandment to everyone. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I don't know that much. You know more than somebody. If you came to faith in Jesus yesterday, you know more than most. Go teach somebody who doesn't know about Jesus who Jesus is. Yes, they might ask you questions that you don't know the answer to. And when you do, I'll teach you the greatest tactic in the world. Here it is. You want to know how to respond to anybody when they ask you a question you don't know? You say, I don't know. But I'll find out. And you call me. And I'll say, I don't know. But I'll find out. That's what you pay me for, right? It's not a joke. I'm serious. Just teach somebody. Teach somebody what you've learned and what you're learning. First, we obey the law, and secondly, we teach others to obey the law. You want to know how to be significant in the kingdom? That's how. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to one more Bible study where you're intaking and not giving to somebody else, thinking that it will result in you being called great in the kingdom of heaven? It's neutrality. We were never meant to be containers of God's truth and grace. We were meant to be conduits where it flows through us, not merely into us. But then we come to verse 20, where we have, thirdly, what we see here is an overwhelming problem. And that is that Jesus tells these people, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They would have heard this and thought, well, who then can be saved? 
The scribes and the Pharisees, they're the righteous ones. They're the best. They're the holiest. These, I mean, this is the elite of the elite obeyers. And if, we, if our righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we're all in trouble. And we, we, would, we should hear that and think the same thing. Because what Jesus is saying is that the commandment from God is to, to perfectly obey the law. God knew what he was doing when he gave us his word. Notice he doesn't say, be holy like I am holy, like, like in a similar fashion. He says, be holy for I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. You are to be holy in the same way that I am holy. And we all look at that and go, I can't ever do that. My righteousness can't exceed the scribes or the Pharisees. My righteousness can't live up to Jesus. And if I have to be that righteous in order to enter the kingdom, I'm, all, I'm in trouble. And, and not only does Jesus present that problem to us, but he goes on as we're going to look in these next six sections where he talks about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and hate. And he's going to raise the bar even higher because simultaneously, the Pharisees were really, really good at presenting their own righteousness and lowering the bar. And Jesus is like, oh, by the way, your righteousness has to exceed theirs, and let me show you by how far. And he goes to raise the bar again. Because if you just get angry with somebody, you're guilty of murder. If you just look at somebody with lust, you're guilty of adultery. You have to always do what you say. You can't ever retaliate. To hate somebody is the same as, I mean, he just raises the bar. Your, your righteousness not only has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, it has to be so perfect that not only do your actions have to be perfect, your thoughts do too. And I'm so glad none of you get to hear what's in my head. We're all in trouble. So what do we do? Well, we have two options. The first is to, to, to take the American way. What, what is the American way? It is to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You told me, Jesus, that I can't do that. Watch me. But it's too late. We're all already transgressors. Even if you were to, to offer God perfect obedience from here on out for the rest of your life, it's already too late. We've all already broken his law. So you can trust yourself and your righteousness and your goodness to enter the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus is telling us it'll never get you there. And option number two is to trust him to fulfill the law on your behalf. Look at this passage in reverse. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you have to obey perfectly. And you have to teach others to obey. And so we're all in trouble. But I have come not to abolish the law, not to lower the bar, not to relieve us from it, but to fulfill it. 
And not just to fulfill it in appearing as the Messiah, but to fulfill it on your behalf by being your obedience, your righteousness, your goodness, your perfection on your behalf. And even though I'm not going to break it, I will be the sinner on your behalf. At least in terms of how he is treated. And at the cross, we find the perfect son of God who gets treated with what we deserve so that we, by faith, can be treated with what he deserves. And so we simply, we trust. We trust Christ. We trust that he has accomplished what we cannot. We trust that he died in our place. We trust that he was resurrected again so that we could be given life and not with empty promises, but with the power of an empty grave. And then we trust that God's word is good and that his commandments are not burdensome. And we teach them to others. And we live in obedience to the law Not because we want to uphold or project our own perfection, but because we believe in the goodness of God and the goodness of his Christ. And what's the result? Well, if we just consider two weeks ago, we end up living very salty and light-filled lives. Lord, make us salty and filled with light. May we live obediently to you so that So that we might not only experience the goodness of obedience to your word, but so that we might be able to display your goodness to the world around us. Lord, we we know from 2 Corinthians that, that, that the truth of the gospel is the aroma of life to those who are being redeemed and the stench of death to the perishing. There will be some who who see our salty and light-filled lives and hear the gospel as taught from our mouths and, and love it. And there will always be those who are repulsed by it. May we never be so foolish as to think that by abandoning your word that everybody will want to believe. But give us much, much higher views of your word than that. Understanding that it all points to you. and That while you have not annulled it, you have fulfilled it. And now our command is to relate to it and obey it exactly as you now call us to. Which is different. But nonetheless good. Lord, may we love your word. May we proclaim your word. May we delight in, in obeying your word and submitting to it when we don't understand it. Lord, would you use that saltiness and that light and that willingness to teach others? Would you use that to to draw others to yourself and to your goodness? May we see that it is not because of the abandonment of your word, but by the unashamed proclamation of your word. By, as Paul says, the foolishness of preaching your word to the world around us, that people are redeemed. And may it be for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.